Maybe don't know. Maybe don't. This time, 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 What's up, everybody? I am your host, Chris Hampton. Welcome to episode 28 of the Power Company podcast brought to you by PowerCompanyClimbing.com. It's been 12 days since the last episode, which seems like forever, honestly, to me and I'm sure to you guys, too, since you're always messaging me wanting more. Uh, But thanks to the patrons who got us over our $100 a month mark from the last episode. You guys are now getting three per month, which... uh, you know, I'm excited about too because I've got a ton of these things just sitting and waiting to go out. Um, and uh, I've also had some requests for the Moonboard episode that I've been promising. And uh, the first Devil's Advocate, that's what it's going to be. Uh, Nate and I are going to argue the pros and cons of the Moonboard. And uh, we've got some surprises coming up for that one. That's why it's taken a while. And uh, you should have that one pretty soon in the next episode or two. Um, so be on the lookout for that. Um, we're here in sunny Waco tanks still, and um, we'll be here for a couple of more weeks. And actually, I'm kind of sad to leave, but you know, the crew that we've been hanging out with here is is starting to clear out, so it's going to be a little a little lonely here. And it's been fun for me because these you know, it's a bunch of 20 year old, early 30 year old kids um, who were all around the Red River Gorge this fall. So I saw their faces, but never really got to know them. And now we've all been hanging out in the barn here at the Rock Ranch every morning and every evening. And it's been super fun for me to get to know these kids. And, you know, they keep me young. Um, I'm an old man here, so it's been pretty fun. And, you know, shout out to the whole crew, Um, Al Shepard and Manny, Pete and Lana, who's the barn mom, uh, Pat and Grumpy Kyle. Uh, Kyle and I have an understanding. We just don't talk to each other while we're drinking coffee in the mornings. And uh, Jonah, who was here for a bit and peaced out, uh, the most stoked kid on earth. Uh, Crimp and Carly, Dahlia, who tries harder than all of you. Uh, Tomer, the master of all the obscure skills in the universe. And regular Zach and Tim. And if I'm forgetting any of you guys, sorry, that's a long list and I'm in a hurry here as I sort of always am, it seems like these days. But for real, shout out to all of you guys because you're making this time here amazing. Um, And community is really what this thing is about for me. And and more and more, that's becoming the most important factor, which kind of brings us to today's podversation with Cody Roth. Uh, This is a rare catch and release episode. I just talked with Cody last week in Austin where Nate and I were for a workshop at Crux Climbing Center. And thanks, Austin. Thanks, Crux, for having us out. Uh, went great. Can't wait to come back. Uh, I had never met or talked to Cody, um, but I saw a little blurb on A Day that he had just completed the hardest route in Texas. And, uh, you know, I knew who Cody was through films and, you know, hearing about him for years. And he's kind of a dark horse in the climbing community, which I think is kind of cool. And he had lived over in Innsbruck for a while. So I knew he had an interesting story. Uh, so I just hit Cody up via Facebook Messenger and said, hey, can we? chat and he was like sure come over to my house and you know there we were an hour or two later and just sat and talked to Cody for a while so uh, I think he's got some really important things to say about the climbing community and about how he approached this route uh, that he got injured on previously and um, I think you guys have something to learn from him so uh, turn it over to Cody Maybe I guess the challenge, because I knew it still has to be possible, and I didn't want to go around in circles. You know, I didn't want to just be pissed off and lament the fact, because somebody's going to climb it if I'm not going to climb it. before just like on one trip when we were kind of checking it out but uh we just went to rhymers the local spot uh it was a super hot day our dog got bit by fire ants oh man (laughs) it was kind of a 
epically disaster day and we were like oh we don't know about this place then we came back a year later and we liked it more yeah and really liked the city and we thought all right we can definitely live here and make oh, this that's work. cool that's cool so what you were in europe for how long i spent um eight years in europe i think almost nine was it all innsbruck or were you in i traveled a lot but yeah mainly i lived in innsbruck lived in innsbruck at that time what prompted you to come back to the states yeah i kind of hit a like a glass ceiling or kind of a plateau with what i could do there and dealing with visas and all the rest of it i was yeah. finally so sick of it that i decided that i needed to make a fresh start yeah so, came back to home back. in albuquerque and yeah. now you're here in austin yeah cool the the route you just did is on private property right it is yeah but is somewhat accessible if you work it out yeah it's, defi- it it's definitely somewhat accessible if you work it out it's owned by a couple of climbers okay um and then their main thing is it's kind of a it's quite a sensitive area where it is a river runs right in front of it so oh, you cool. can't have a lot of people sure there. sure um and they also spend a lot of money out of their own private pockets to gain access to this place yeah, so they're yeah. a little bit protective of it yeah absolutely um understandably so main but mainly it comes down to if there's more than 20 people at this place it just gets trampled and yeah can get ruined so they try to just keep the numbers down no, I think that's a good idea. You know, being from the red, I've seen what a lot of people can do to an area and you could really, really ruin it. You know, if you get a ton of people trampling around the base of climbs. So Nate, if you want this microphone at any point to ask something, just tell me. Um, let's talk about the route. It, it breaks off of I, me, mine, which used to be the hardest route in Texas, right? Yeah, I, me, mine used to be the hardest route. It was put up by uh, Austin Local named uh, Rupesh Shagan some years ago. Okay. Um, and then Nick Duddle repeated it and kind of yep. brought it into the light. Yeah, I remember when famous. that happened. Um, and definitely brought a, a lot of attention to Austin climbing, I think, mm-hmm. with his repeat of that route. And Nick had, I think Rupesh kind of left the grade open. Nick thought it could be 14D. As beta's kind of gotten refined and whatnot, it settled into more like 14C. Okay. Um, yeah, it's a fun little climb. So I, I did that one last year when I moved here yep. fairly quickly. And then I started working this extension. But uh, about three days in, I tore a pulley in my uh, middle finger. Had to take a month and a half off, two months off. You did that on the route? On the route, yeah. Yeah. Is it a specific hold or was it just kind of a freak accident? Just sort of bad luck. The hold I was on wasn't the smallest hold on the route, but it was okay. just that classic loud audible pop. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then a little bit later, some pain. The recovery was pretty fast. I think I was climbing again a month and a half after the accident Okay. with a lot of tape. Um, Any trepidation getting back on the route? Definitely, yeah. There was a lot. When I went back to try it again, it was with the finger severely taped like a hook. <laughs> yeah. With a lot of fear. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I've been pretty lucky with finger injuries. I guess I did a similar thing in my ring finger four years ago in Rockland. Mm-hmm. That one seemed to be easier to overcome. I think 10 days later, I was climbing again in Rockland, again, just with a lot of tape. Okay. Um, so I guess I've been lucky in that respect that the injuries I have had, a, I seem to recover fairly yeah. quickly. Yeah. And you said you're not, you said you're more of a sport climber, less of a boulder. Yeah, I would say so. I really love power endurance climbing. I think okay. that's my favorite thing. But uh, but I also like trad climbing. I like bouldering. I really like everything. Multi-pitch climbing. Yeah, that's pretty nice for, you know, when you're, when you get these finger injuries, you can kind of switch up your, exactly. your style if you need to. Yeah. The So the route, you named it me i eat dust is that right yeah Yeah. where's the name come from the name comes from this uh gary newman song okay that i think came out like in the early 80s i was gonna say late 70s early yeah early 80s yeah gary i think gary newman was really ahead of his time Uh as far as his lyrics and the music that he was putting out like i play that song for people now and they're like wow this sounds like indie this sounds like it just came out two years ago yeah and i'm always like no no look it came out in like i think it was 1981 1980 something okay cool i think that guy was really ahead of his time but yeah, I mean, the main inspiration is the name I Me Mine. I Me Mine, And right. it was just playing on the first line of that song, It's Impossible to Understand. Yep. And uh, we had a lot of jokes with it. Um, I think it's two or three years ago, my girlfriend and I were climbing in Peru. We were uh, bolting routes at a new sport climbing area, really good limestone that's at like 14,400 feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like suffering. And there was, we were also listening to the song there and the Peruvian guys that were hosting us and that we were climbing with, they heard it <laughs> and they were like, ah, it sounds like he's saying migajitas. And we're like, what's migajitas? It's there. Like, yeah, you know, it's like crumbs. 
when there's crumbs, let's <laughs> oh, make really? hitas. So we bolted like kind of a chassis warm up because everything was so hard. Yeah. And we named that climb migahitas. Migahitas. So, was, so then when I mean mine was around, I was like, oh no, it has to be me. I eat dust. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So yeah, just a lot of funny memories with that song. And yeah, and I love knowing the story behind names, you know. And it sounds like this one was a journey for you too. So yeah, I, I definitely put a lot something. of time into it. It's by no means the most beautiful thing I've climbed, but sure. definitely the most challenging thing I've climbed mm -hmm. as far as the movement. Um, I wouldn't say it's my perfect style, but it definitely suits me. It's a little bit too bouldery to be maybe my best style. Right. But it's still definitely, it's like 20 moves of where you just can't really stop. Right. Um, so it definitely suits me to some degree. Yeah, and you had Killian up there with you as well. So Yeah, when I sent it, he wasn't there. But the weekend before when Killian came, he did I Me Mine second try and just put on a master class. Yeah. Um, if there was any thought about it being a 14D, he definitely threw that out the window. Right, right. Yeah, he <laughs> did something similar up at the rodeo wave with Genetic Drifter, right? I think uh, he did he that, did that second fast. or third try, something like it that. It was pretty quick. I don't know if it was that quick. That was such an amazing trip that we had yeah. at uh, Wild Iris. But he did do that one quick, too. I think Genetic Drifter is really hard. Yeah. Um, there's a sequence in the middle that really doesn't suit me at mm -hmm. all, that I can wear the move is so desperate. Yep. Um, sure. And we're pretty similar in height, but he somehow makes it look not so desperate. Yeah, I climbed but, with uh, him at the red a little bit on uh, Transworld. When I, it was my ultimate project at the time and i watched him do it second go and then i did it right after he did so it was or maybe vice versa i did it right before he did but super fun to watch him like you just said put on a master class yeah i think yeah. killian has such good style and uh i don't know i guess i've been climbing 23 years now and the more that i get involved with climbing or for now it's like when i was younger it was like oh i want to repeat this route or i want to do this Mm -hmm. And now with climbing, it's more I see my friends like Killian and some other friends that I have in Austria and they have such good style. And it's more like, no, more than the climb, I like want to mimic their style or I want to climb in that style. Yeah. Uh, that kind of has become a little bit of a, an emphasis, I guess, to some degree. I don't achieve that goal, but yeah. more and more I'm aiming for that goal where it's like, no, I want to climb with a good style. It's not just necessarily about getting to the top, but I want to do it with some style. And even like this route I did, the try I did, it was really cold that night. My fingers mm -hmm. numbed out. Um, the try before I'd actually fallen off in the last, the absolute last possible place that you could fall. Uh, of course. And I'd climbed pretty decent that try. I was happy with how I was climbing. And my second try, I was definitely more fatigued and it just became a boxing match. Really? Where my foot slipped in a place where it really pissed me off. Yeah. And even like the last couple of days, I'm like, oh man, maybe I want to climb it again just because I know I can do it with go better back style. And do it in better style. Yeah. But I probably won't, but it's still... A little bit in the back of my mind. When you went to Innsbruck initially, was it because those guys there are such good climbers? Is that the, you know, did you go there just to learn that style? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, at that time, I wasn't thinking so much about style, but I was thinking about like the most optimal place to live. Um, I was 19 when I went to Innsbruck. And that particular year, I was a finalist at one of the lead climbing World Cups. Mm -hmm. And that's what kind of gave me traction and kept me there. Okay. So like the first three months that I was there, I slept on Killian's floor. Cool. Yeah, I was <laughs> wondering his, like, about your competition history since you weren't much of a boulder, you said. Yeah. So you were doing mostly lead climbing. I was, yeah. I oh, okay. grew up doing the junior competitions. I okay. think in 2001, I was junior North American champion. Uh, before that, I took, I guess, second place at a couple uh, junior national events. Okay. I think at World Youth Championships, my best result was maybe also fifth or sixth place. Um, and then that particular year, I moved on to competing in the adult category. And I was, yeah, I had kind of early success. Yeah. Um, in some ways, in retrospect, I think I kind of wish my success would have come a little bit later. Um, because it really came out of nowhere and it was hard to, to grasp, you know. When I went into that competition, I had no expectation of making the finals. Sure. I was like, man, if I can just be top 20, if I can be 15, how cool is that? And mm -hmm. then all of a sudden I climbed and even leading up to that uh, finals round in the semifinal, I like barely made the cut for semis. I was like maybe 24th place and I think they took 25 guys. So I was second out to climb on the semis and I just had a really hard, like high, high point. And then I watched all of these like heroes like Francois Petit, Christian Brin, all these guys yeah. that I really looked up to and they were falling lower than me. I was just like pinching my skin and thinking, no, this isn't happening. This yeah. isn't happening. And then... By the time the semis were over, I was like in sixth or seventh place. They took eight people into finals. I think they still take eight people into finals wow. now. Um, yeah, and then I had to like get it together and get over those jitters to climb in the yeah. final with the huge loud crowd. Yeah, um, and you, you just mentioned that you kind of weren't ready for that level of 
success at that point. And that's kind of what made me want to talk to you today. You know, when I, I read some comments you made on your new route, Me I Eat Dust, and uh, on 8A, I think is where I read them. Uh, they had a little write-up on there. And you mentioned that that you're climbing better now than you ever have, and you're 33 now. And then in your 20s, you just didn't take it as seriously. Is that something you wish you would have done? Like you, you wish you would have, one of those, I wish I would have known then what I know now. In some ways, definitely. There's moments where I think that. Sure. Um, I mean, I was really disciplined up until I got to Austria, basically. And I think that was a part of it, too. Through my younger years, I put so much effort into climbing. Right. And, um, you know, I'm kind of self-taught, self-trained. I grew up in an isolated mm-hmm. place, being that I was in New Mexico and not a massive scene there, you know. Like yeah. Colorado was just to the north of us. Yep. Um, you know, Boulder is about six hours north of where I grew up. So it was always like at the beginning with the junior competitions, I was the only kid coming from New Mexico. And like my family would have to make all of these sacrifices and drive me like six hours, seven hours, eight hours to compete. Right. right. Taking like time off of work on the Friday, pulling yeah. me out of school. It was really cool. All the support For a totally non-mainstream sport. For, yeah. I mean, yeah. I really had to convince them at the beginning they were reluctant, but then they saw how much it yep. meant to me and they started. And then once they saw that I did have some potential and some talent, they started to then support me and make the necessary sacrifices. Yeah, but that's, uh, that's nice to have. That's important. Yeah, I mean, I still feel guilty about it today. All of the effort that they invested, um, it definitely wasn't easy. You know, they didn't drive fancy cars. There were sure. there were a lot of things that they sacrificed. Yeah, so that I could climb. My grandmother as well. It was. Well, I think that that's whole what part of the family. parents and grandparents do. Yeah, know? it's more about what makes the kid happy than anything else. So it's just it's nice that you've found a life in it still. Yeah, you know? definitely. Um, and so, yeah, through that period, like I had ridiculous discipline where my dad's a swim coach. So I grew up swimming as a kid uh-huh. um, and swimming was a big part of my training. I typically swim two to three days a week yep. and I was living at a higher elevation. And I found that that really helped my recovery a ton with competitions, just having that base aerobic right. level of fitness. Sure. And I invested a ton of time into climbing too. Um, like a lot of people think that I'm some natural talent. Um, mm-hmm. sometimes even my friends or people who don't know me well, they're like, yeah, you're just a freak or you have this natural talent. And I don't really see it that way. Um, I'm a big believer of like Malcolm Gladwell and a lot of what he says in outliers where yep. based on a lot of his research, he feels like you need 10,000 hours before he basically just doesn't believe in the idea of a natural talent. And I tend to right. agree with that. Right. I think that you do have to put in the time. And what's cool is once you get to that level of 10,000 hours or just a ton of effort that you've put in, you don't really lose that level. Um, right. Like the years that I lived in Austria, I got into free ride snowboarding quite a bit as well. And sometimes I'd take like six weeks off of climbing or seven weeks off of climbing mm-hmm. and just put all my energy into snowboarding. And typically when I would come back after six or seven weeks off, after a day of messing around, going out cragging, I could onside 13B again. Right. And then maybe like that kind of base level, once you put in that time, you just don't really lose it. Yeah, totally. I think if you work hard and like you just said, build up to a certain base level, it comes back so fast. Yeah. You know, and, and some research says that it's good to step away for those, those short breaks, you know, the four to six weeks breaks now and then. So, Yeah, at different times, it definitely helps my motivation and helps me yeah. not get injured. Yeah, I think that's huge, being motivated. And you have to do what you're psyched on, you know, you have to do what's making you happy at the time. So I think that's a smart play to move away and do something else you're stoked on. Yeah. But um, no, like looking back at that time, I mean, Innsbruck was really great for my human development. It was amazing. Yeah. But it was just like such a social scene in a way. Maybe it was a little bit overwhelming. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think I was quite mature enough for like what I was taking on. Like, if I look back on it, I still think it's crazy that I was like 20 years old and renting my own apartment, working jobs under the table, like just living like hand to mouth completely on the minimum. If I look back at it, I'm like, I can't believe I did that. It worked. But just loving it. But just loving it. it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm a really, and I used the word partying, I think, on 8A when they asked me some questions. And it was yep. more, it's not that I was like, it's just more that I was into socializing, you know? Sure. So I'd be psyched on going to a concert and then h- hanging out with friends until three in the morning. I'd want to do everything. And I think that was, maybe it's just part of learning in a way. But like, I totally. didn't realize, okay, I thought that I could do everything. Mm-hmm. And then as you start to get into your late 20s, your late 30s, you're like, okay, no, I do have to prioritize a little bit. And yeah. So what I are do- those priorities? What are you changing now that, do you think is different? I mean, now what's really nice is I have a really structured way of living. Mm-hmm. Um, for the last three years, I've been working full-time as an Arado rope access trainer. Okay. So basically what that means is I train, for the most part, tradespeople, 
how to work on ropes. So it's like a really safe two rope system. It's an international association and an international accreditation. And uh, yeah, so typically for the last years, the way my work's worked is uh, I do 26 courses a year, 26 weeks of work. And then the rest of the time I have free. So, that's nice. I, so you're half year on, half year yeah, off. Yeah, I mean, technically it's a full-time job. And right. I'm paid as if I'm a full-time worker, but really I have half of the year to climb oh, man, and that's do what nice. I want to do. But it also requires me to be a little bit focused. Um, I sure. live in Austin and my work's in Houston. Mm-hmm. So when I'm in Houston, you know, a typical day for me starts by waking up at 6 o'clock, getting the training center ready, um, working until 4 o'clock, trying to beat traffic to get to the gym in Houston to do a training session. Yep. If traffic's heinous or if I don't get there, luckily where our training center is, there's a CrossFit gym right next door. And they've been really good neighbors, so I don't do CrossFit, but I'll go in there and I'll use their rowing machine and I'll row 10 kilometers. Yeah. Or, uh, yeah, the last year and a half I've been doing quite a bit of rowing, where typically on a week in Houston I'll row 20 kilometers in the week. Mm-hmm. Normally two times a week I'll row 10Ks. They've got a pegboard there as well, and then I've got a hangboard that I have with me. So some weeks I'll be so busy that I won't make it to the gym. But if I can't make it to the gym, I just make sure that I keep my body active. Yeah, and you've got your training set up that you can do. Whether yeah, you and I'm not. always tweaking it a little bit. Um, yeah, I'm not real regimented in my training, but I just try to look at the projects that I'm doing and try to sure. figure out, okay, what am I lacking? Mm-hmm. And then like with this project, I mean mine, I was definitely lacking a little bit of finger strength. So just doing a little bit to maintain the finger strength, just doing enough to maintain some power endurance. Yeah, I'm still with me with my climbing. I'm not ever doing one style. So I'm also trying to just maintain fitness and everything Yeah, because I'll try that project here. And then I'll also want to go to Europe and do like 30 meter routes. Right. So I try to just focus a little bit on everything. And I think it's also important to know your strengths and know your weaknesses. Definitely. Um, That's huge. And to train your strengths really hard. Like you shouldn't, you shouldn't say, okay, I'm strong at this. So I'm just going to let it fall to the wayside and focus this thing on this thing that I'm weak at. Yep. Um, you've still got to know, okay, that's my strength, so I still need to perfect that and then emphasize a little bit of specific stuff with your weaknesses. Yeah, yeah. I think it's important to have, you know, my clients who have a very specific strength and a very specific weakness, I definitely load their training toward their weaknesses, but I, I'd like to them to spend at least a quarter of their time on their strengths. You know, it, it keeps you motivated, if nothing else, because you're that's where you're performing really well, and that's what keeps us stoked to keep going yeah are you getting outside during this six months of work i am so typically the way it works is i'll have a week in houston and then i'll have a week off back home in austin okay so i go through a really intense work week and then the following week i have completely free and that's throughout the whole year and that's throughout the whole year okay on occasion sometimes depending on just the demand with clients sometimes i'll have to work three weeks four weeks in a row yeah but then usually that means that i can then take three weeks to go to europe or four weeks off or various amounts of time in a row Mm -hmm. or extra time at christmas yeah so i'm curious more about this route Uh, i know that you you know when you came back to the states originally from innsbruck or from europe you repeated or did the fa of some old trad project is that right yeah i did Uh, i I kind of remember reading about that a while ago yeah i did a couple uh trad first descents in new mexico when i came back okay um the one that I did the first ascent of had been this kind of iconic line just above the city of Albuquerque where I grew up. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a 10,000 feet and on just this beautifully striking granite wall that looks more like sandstone than it does yeah, granite. Yeah, there was a video of that one. Right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yep. What was the name um, of it? That one's called Date with Death. Okay, And before, right. before um, you know, the C3s and the really small cams, it was rumored to be kind of like an X-rated route. And right, death. right. And the tragic thing about it, the guy who had the vision for the line, he fell on like the very last move mm. on his best burn. Supposedly, like rumor has it, a photographer was out that day and was in the way on this ledge oh, no. that you have to mantle onto. So I guess he was pumped. The photographer was in the way and he fell. Uh. Like 90% of the, 99% of he did the climb, you know, right, he just right. clipped the chains, yep. but it was far enough away to where you couldn't give him, you know, he wasn't above the chain. It was still like, oh, you almost did it, but right. you didn't do it. Yeah. So because sad. of that incident, it was always like, oh, has it been climbed? Has it not been climbed? But right. he never really claimed it as climbed. John Duran was this guy's name. Okay. Who was also kind of like a Gary Newman of climbing where I think he was definitely ahead of his time, ahead of his bit, game yeah. and ahead of his time. And it's a weird route. The first, I mean, it's bullet rock um, in the first 65 feet it, you can protect it reasonably well with gear mm-hmm. then um the gear kind of dries out so there's two really old bolts on the top that he placed by hand 
and without at least one of the bolts it'd definitely be like super death borderline free solo yeah kind of climb so i did clip the bolts at the top on that line um but yeah and a lot of the stuff in the sandias around albuquerque they follow that style where it's like really creative gear placement and then where there's no chance to place gear then there's a hand-drilled bolt it's all in the wilderness so gotcha yeah power drilling can occur there which is kind of cool that it's preserved the sort of unique kind of mm -hmm. hybrid style of climbing yep are you more motivated by FAs than you are repeats? Not really. If it's if a route just looks really cool, more than anything, I want to do it. It yeah. is exciting to, um, like when I've bolted my own routes or when I've rediscovered a route on my own and finding the sequence and the methods on your own, that's like a really exciting discovery. Right. And you lose out on that when you're repeating things. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, if the line looks amazing, I'm just motivated to climb it. Yeah. Um, is the one you just did... Was that something you put the bolts into or was it an, I didn't, an established actually. project? It was established, yeah. Okay. Everything was in place. Cool. So um, it changed. There was a hold that kind of deteriorated in the time that I was doing it. Mm -hmm. um, and I had to come up with a totally new sequence this year because of that. So then how I much was time, mainly working it alone. How much time did you put into it prior to the hold deteriorating? Quite a bit of time. So that's definitely a little bit hard on the head. When, and it was like within spitting distance where it was like, oh, this is going to happen any day. And uh, when did that happen? I guess it was, I went to Europe for a work trip in November and did some climbing afterwards. And then, yeah, I came back and like this hold just wasn't the same. And oh. I don't know if it crumbled a little bit while I was trying it on my last good try and I didn't realize. Right. Don't really know what happened, but luckily I found another hold. And with that hold, I was able to make a new sequence. Um, okay. But yeah, mentally it was really frustrating. Yeah. Well, where, what went through your head that first day back and you're like, oh no, the hold's basically gone luckily i could do the other move fairly quickly okay. but then as i started to link that so i was pretty optimistic and not too deterred so you pretty quickly started looking for another pretty quickly solution. i looked for another solution i was okay. like it's just not the same it can't be at first i thought actually i guess no that's not true it took a few days initially i thought that i was just weaker and then uh the more i looked at it, i was like no that holds just not the same hold um and then from there i did find another hold um but the, and i first i was quite optimistic i thought oh, it's not going to change a thing but then as I started to try the, to link the mo movement, I realized that it was quite a drastic change mm -hmm. and that it was definitely like kind of going back to the drawing board. Yeah. Um, you kind of you kind of glossed right over that. It took a couple of days, but I think that's pretty important because in the span of a couple of days, I mean, some people haven't even spent a couple of days on a route ever in their life, you know, and walking up to something you've put work on, put work into getting to the move and and all of a sudden something's different, something's changed, a lot of people just bail right then and there, you know, like, oh, I can't do it anymore, you know, and just be pissed off and angry. So what what kept you coming back for a couple of days to yeah. keep trying something you could do previously and now all of a sudden couldn't do? I guess the challenge, because I knew it still has to be possible and I didn't want to go around in circles. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to just be pissed off and limit yep. the facts because somebody's going to climb it if I'm not going to climb it. Mm -hmm. So I thought, yeah, I might as well put all of my effort into it. I started to try it. What was cool about that was I got a little bit burned out on the route. And so I started to try some of the other harder lines on the cliff and I had success on those. And then, uh, yeah, I kind of took my foot off the gas but it actually really benefited me i started trying some other lines on the cliff and i yeah. for a while i was like totally focused just on that line so after that happened i still put a lot of energy into it and i wasn't seeing progress and then i kind of took my foot off the gas played around on some other lines still didn't like um forget about it so typically i'd warm up i'd give one maximum two tries it's pretty hard on the skin yeah so i'd give two like honest burns on it and then i'd pack it up and then go check out other things on the cliff Okay. And I think that was really important, I think, just for keeping the psych. Um, yeah, I think you're right. Nate and I were just talking about that with our trips to Waco and how they're going. And it's definitely tough to keep motivated if you're not topping out anything. Yeah. You know? And it's also hard when you, you know, when you know that a line is close and you're excited about it, it's hard not to get totally tunneled in. Yeah. When I was younger, I would never do that. But the older I get and the more that I realize it's fleeting, sometimes I get suckered into doing that. Oh, yeah. I do for um, sure. It's, but yeah, it's good also to try other movement. And sometimes it's surprising that even though you're less focused, there's also that element of less pressure. Yeah. So I think once I started to try some other routes on the cliff and uh, have some success, I went back to that one with a lot less pressure. Mm -hmm. And I think that definitely Yeah, helped. I think it's also probably important that you're in an area that doesn't have 
dozens of 14 C's and 14 D's. Yeah. You know, or you might have just bailed on that one and moved to another one. Right. Which is um, a little bit of what I did, but I had put so much effort into that route. I didn't want to just like completely yeah. forget about it. Yeah. I was like, no, I have to keep on trying the moves and I have to keep on trying because yeah. I've put more work into this than anything else I've put work into. I'm not just like going to let it go with without a fight. Yeah. Um, but no, trying other routes. And I think just for my confidence, it gave me a lot of confidence. Uh, the weeks before I did it, I flashed my first 14A. Nice. Um, and then I did a couple 14Cs when I downgraded, but doing those routes and a handful of tries that made me confident in yeah. what I was trying and the amount of time that I was putting in, it gave me conviction, I guess, to, all right, this is definitely hard. Yeah. And just to kind of bunker down. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And you said you think it's fleeting. How how fleeting do you think it is? I mean, I w want to think that it's not fleeting because I feel really good. Yeah. But at the same time, there's no telling. Three years ago, I had a weird compartment injury in my left arm. Mm -hmm. And I lost probably nine months of climbing in one year. And I spent a lot of time surfing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like when my girlfriend and I, when we first started dating, she's a climber and a surfer as well. I'd just come back from South Africa. I'd spent a lot of time there. And I'd been battling the injury before I went there. I went there, did sport climbing and bouldering that trip. I stayed, I managed to stay there 80 days that trip. It wow. was just a great trip. But um, yeah, by the end of it, like this injury was becoming so debilitating that the last bit of my trip in South Africa, I'd just been surfing and mm -hmm. uh, put climbing completely on the back burner. Yeah. Um, and then when I came back, we started dating and she was into surfing as well. We were both living in New Mexico. Not really the ideal place for surfers to live. Right. Yeah. But we were like <laughs> putting the boards in the car, driving 12 hours to San Diego to surf like for three days or four days. Nice. We did a couple surf trips to Nicaragua and I was just like, she kind of thought that I was like not going to climb anymore. Over climbing. Or that yeah. it was just going to be like a fitness kind of social thing for me. Yeah. But, um, but as that arm started to heal, I got hungry again. But yeah. it, it took about a year there for me to get that hunger and the motivation back yeah so, so i think you know i think it's easy to to believe that as we get older it's it, that it is fleeting you know and and maybe that's a good thing maybe that puts a little bit of pressure on us and i think you sort of alluded to that in the eight day write up and uh you know i i sort of feel the same thing as a 40 plus year old climber who's really just discovered bouldering i feel like and i've said this multiple times over the last few weeks that I feel like I need to learn to boulder hard while I still can, you know, and, you know, I wish I would have tried to boulder this way in my twenties or in my early thirties. But the fact is I, I feel like I'm still getting better, you know, and you're climbing better than you ever have. So maybe it's not as fleeting as you think, you know, but maybe that pressure's good. Yeah, I think it is good. I mean, I see a lot of examples to where I think that it's not fleeting. Though. Yeah. Like one of my best friends back in Innsbruck, he's 42 now. And like mm -hmm. just last year, he quietly freed the mirror wall. Yeah. And he's nice. like doing some of his best sport climbing. He's still in 14C climbing shape. Yeah. Um, doing tons of stuff. And he's 42 and looks just as fit as he did when we were climbing together when he was the age that I am now. Right. Uh, so yeah, I see in Arno Petit, there's a lot of people, Stevie Haston, who's yeah, the, the Yuji Hirayamas. The Yuji Hirayamas. Yeah. There's definitely where I think, no, I think climbing can continue on. Uh, the hard thing with climbing, I think, is the power of sport. Like surfing, I can see doing that well into oh, my 70s. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, but again, it's like much more a style sport and a technique sport, whereas mm -hmm. climbing, you do have that raw power and yep. that risk of injury yep. and all the rest of it. Are you feeling like, like I know BJ has bumped up against this in Lander where he feels like he's done most of the hard things and he's having a hard time searching things out and you're going to be here in austin for another four or five years you said something like that yeah no no telling at yeah. this point are um, you are you feeling like you've bumped up against some sort of glass ceiling here there's still enough projects near here that i don't feel quite that way okay but four to five years if i continue with the vein of form that i have at the moment i could maybe start to feel that way yeah um we do have mexico not too far away okay um but still it's a six-hour drive there's mm -hmm. also some stuff in West Texas that's kind of unexplored along the Pecos River. Yeah. Actually, in closer in San Antonio, there's also some climbing that I haven't checked out. Oh, but, really? Uh, it's also on private property and also somewhat access challenging, potentially. Make you have to work for it. Yeah. yeah. So I think there's enough that I can stay entertained. The big thing that's new for me here is uh, that it's so warm here. Um, I've never lived in a place so warm. Right. Um, so your season is a little bit short. We do have really good deep water soloing in the summer, mm -hmm. but the last years there's been so much water here that it hasn't been, it's all been underwater. Yeah. So uh, like this last summer was definitely a little bit grim for me. I spent so much time in the gym. 
Um, I just like put my head down and did a ton of work, took on as much work as I could so that I could have free time in the winter. Yeah. And uh, just plugged away at the gym. Yeah. You've kind of taken the, the, you know, a different path, I think, than most of the, you know, the accomplished sport climbers in America. And, and you're certainly in this, you know, climbing at around the same level that they are. Do you like that sort of underdog, dark horse feel? Is yeah, that something I think I you do. enjoy. Yeah, it's comfortable for me because I've yeah. always been the dark horse. You yeah. know, I was the kid from New Mexico competing in Colorado. Yep. And then I was the kid from New Mexico sleeping in a tent competing at a World Cup. Right, right. Um, with a really, really small budget. So yeah, I've always been used to being the dark horse. Mm-hmm. The one thing that is really nice now for me is that I have this job that gives me a really nice income that yeah. there's no pressure like to climb well. Mm-hmm. That's whereas in the past, all of my money was from sponsorship, from, from route setting. There was like this constant pressure to have a personality, to have success, to do all of this stuff. And now what I really like is I feel no pressure at all. Like tomorrow I can have no sponsors and it doesn't change anything. Right. I'm still going to own this house that I own. I'm still going to have work. And yeah. it's nice to have value outside of climbing that I've really grown to appreciate the last three years. Yeah, definitely. Um, when you were when you were dirtbagging around Europe and doing these World Cups, in your head, did getting a career and getting a job and having that structured life, did that seem like the death of climbing? Yeah, I wasn't sure. Um, I was living so much in the moment that I, I just kind of felt like I wasn't going to live past 30. Um, yeah, yeah. And then suddenly you get to 28, 29, 30, and you're like, <laughs> oh man, I guess I am maybe going to be around for a while. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I was living so much in the moment that I was just trying to put it off. But then once I hit around 28, 29, then reality kind of sets in. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and you realize that you maybe do have to start planning for your future. Yeah, and I don't think it's, you know, honestly, I don't think it's all that different when you're when you're a dirtbag and you're making it all work and making it happen, you're just this resourceful human as it is, you know, so that when you have a, a career and a structure, you just become that same resourceful person and make your situation work. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I, I just, I'm thinking about it because there's so many kids staying at the ranch, at the rock ranch, and they're all just, you know, living the dirtbag life right now, which is super fun to watch. You know, I'm 20 years older than almost all of them so it's it's super fun to watch but i think they all think about as think about getting a career as like the death of their climbing life you know and i don't think it's that way at all and i think you're right in the midst of proving that which is pretty cool to see yeah i think you just have to find something that works for you yeah um and be creative yeah again i think what you touched on with having resourcefulness climbing definitely teaches you how to be resourceful yeah definitely and how to not be wasteful so there's definitely a lot of skills that you can learn there that you can apply yeah. to so many other things and still find a balance yep so you said you're maybe gonna head back to europe that's the ultimate plan eventually maybe i could see moving back there at some point um, yeah we'll see how things develop in the coming years but uh yeah i definitely do love europe um, I could definitely see myself living in Slovenia mm-hmm. or Croatia um, or even Sardinia, the island of Sardinia I really love. Is that where Stevie is? Stevie's in Malta. Malta, that's right. That also right. looks that's like right. a really cool island. Yeah. I haven't been there. It's definitely on my list. Yeah, it looks amazing, man. And again, the you know the opposite path. You're not you're not headed to Spain to you know live the sport climbing life. Spain's so. a little too crowded, I think, for yeah. my taste. And I want to live in a place, Sardinia really would be ideal. I want to live in a place where I can surf and climb. Yeah. Um, and my girlfriend and I, we've done a couple trips there climbing and surfing. We've just had such a great time there. So cool. And if I'm sure I can make everything work out, I hope that maybe five years time or so that that could maybe be a place that we'll be living. Yeah. And I'm That's sure there are projects there waiting to get done. So. Endless. Yeah. I mean, Sardinia is such a magical place. Um, it's kind of like, I kind of describe it as the Wyoming of Europe. Yeah. <laughs> like if you stuck Wyoming in the middle of the Mediterranean, that's kind of Sardinia. There's way more open space there than other parts of Europe. Really? It's not at all overpopulated. There's, it's just such a gorgeous place. Um, wow. And yeah, I really love the fact that there's so much open space there and endless amounts of like climbing in uncrowded places, surfing in uncrowded places. Yeah. A good climate, nice people. Cool. Nate, you have any questions, any thoughts? Um, it seems like you've had a bunch of like kind of big transitions in your life between like different types of climbing and also just where you've lived, either like New Mexico or Europe and now Austin. Uh, do you feel like there's been any big constants that have helped you kind of stay grounded through all that? 
Yeah, I guess so. Um, definitely the friends that I've had in each of these cities have been really important. Um, like the community I had in Innsbruck, it was so good for my development. There were so many good people supporting their, me there and who had my back. Um, yeah, like just too many to count. Uh, and Innsbruck taught me a lot about community. There's a lot of really good things within the culture there um, that were really valuable to learn. You know, in Innsbruck, if somebody has a good day and they send the crag, Rather than everybody saying, oh, we're not worthy, we're not worthy, come to the bar and we'll buy you a bunch of beers. In Innsbruck, it's more the attitude is, no, you had a good day, so you're going to buy everybody else beers. Nice. Because like, you're like, trying to pass on your good fortune. Yeah. It's more the attitude is, oh, I was really fortunate, so the beers are on me. Thanks for supporting me. We can like, celebrate that. You know? like, learning that side of things, I think that was really important for my development. Because uh, when you're younger and when you're having to put all of your money and all of your effort into climbing, it's easy to get selfish. But seeing that attitude of just sharing was really good for me, I think. Um, yeah, my family's always been like emotionally supportive with what I'm doing with climbing. Um, and also my friends who I grew up with climbing in New Mexico to this day, they still support me and they did a lot for me. Um, I did do a lot of self-training, but I also had a really good coach in my younger days who kind of brought me up to a level and also gave me the freedom to kind of experiment. He'd make kind of general training guidelines and plans. And then from there, Lance Hadfield's his name. He's still uh, the head route setter and manager of the Stone Age Climbing Gym in Albuquerque, which uh, is where I grew up. That gym was like really important in my development too, I think. Initially, when I started climbing, I started climbing outside. There was like a horrendous gym that had mattresses on the floor and like rocks glued on to plywood with Sika. Yeah. It was just a bad scene. The guy who ran it was convinced that belay loops were the death of everybody. And all of his followers <laughs> cut their belay loops with knives. Like I can remember that being 12 and like when I got my new harness and I was at the gym and like these people who were older than me in their 20s, there weren't a lot of kids climbing there. You'd go to the gym and you'd have whatever your regular harness and they'd be like, oh man, I just cut my belay loop off with a knife and it only took one minute. I'm not sure about that webbing. It must not be that strong. <laughs> and you just like couldn't talk sense into these people, you know, where it's like, man, that stuff's like 22 kilonewtons strong. What are you talking about? Of course, it's going to break if you take a sharp knife to it. It's not rocket science, you know, oh, man. So Stone Age coming in and opening at that time, what was a really, compared to what was there, definitely a state-of-the-art facility. That was definitely really piv pivotal in my development as a climber. Um, and just the, it was, I think I did have an advantage in that I was one of the few kids climbing in the city. A lot of the older climbers kind of took me under their wing, let me travel with them, and it forced me to be kind of mature and responsible at a young age. Right on. Um, and now here in Austin, there's just so many great people in the city that are all motivated to climb and supportive and we just all kind of support each other. We grill together when we're done climbing. We do other things outside of climbing. It was similar in Innsbruck that way too, that the social side of things was really important and that it wasn't like the focus was never that it was all on you. Um, and even like now it's cool, like Killian Fischhuber and Anastur, they're like on talk shows in Austria and they're really well known, but they walk around the city of Innsbruck where they live like normal people, you know? Nobody stops them, nobody harasses them, nobody. They're just like seen as regular people. Also at the climbing gym that they go to train, there's not a whole lot of like star power, I guess, or like star obsession that really hasn't caught on there. Um, yeah, I'm, I think that was a great question, Nate, and I'm stoked that that's your answer, like that the community played such a huge part in it because that's, that's something we've really tried to focus on, you know, in building the power company and... You know, we just think the, the community is the most important part of it. And, I mean, I just hit you up via Facebook Messenger like three hours ago and you were like, yeah, come to my house, you know, let's talk. I think that's one of the coolest things about this community. Yeah, I love that about climbing. And when you travel, you see a similar thing. Like uh, that trip we did to Peru, I saw a few photos on the internet, yeah. figured out who'd posted the photos, figured out his email address, wrote him a message, and he was like, oh, yeah, I'll pick you up at the airport. I was like, cool, I'll bring yeah. like 200 bolts. Yeah, and totally. We'll bolt, we can bolt and we'll leave him. And he picked us up at the airport and like it was amazing. Yeah. And uh, even this last, for uh, Christmas, New Year's this year, we went climbing on mainland Greece. Mm -hmm. And like the climbing scene on mainland Greece is like what the climbing scene was in Albuquerque in the 1990s. Right. Only they have like ridiculously amazing limestone as far as the eye can see. Yeah. And so few people climbing. But like a similar thing where we got in touch with a guy who was a developer and bolting routes there and... Uh, he was just a super cool dude. He worked as an engineer and he's like, unfortunately, I have a lot of work this week. We like arranged at a, a cafe where we would meet and he wanted to give us a guide. 
And so we're hanging out at the cafe and he's like, oh, because I can't go climbing with you, I've got to pay your food bill. No, no, you can't pay for your food here. <laughs> he's like, and here's your guide. Like that side of climbing I love so much where there's that side of it that still yeah. exists. And like as long as I want to, as long as I climb, I want to contribute in that same, yeah. same way. I want to support younger climbers the same way I was supported. Yeah. I want to try and be, I don't know, a little bit of a role model that way. Yeah, that's, that's a good way to do it. I think it's a, you know, it's a hugely widespread but really tight-knit community i think that's that's really cool and it's you know having people like you who were mentored that way and and then giving back i think that's gonna keep it going so let's hope let's hope yeah, I, yeah i'm blown away at how many people are climbing now um just in the uh, 23 years that i've been involved with explosion. it just in, like in the last five years yeah um we're definitely gonna have some challenges with that of yep. course a lot of good is gonna come out of that too yeah um, i really hope that also sponsored climbers and people who are pursuing it professionally that it's going to put more money in their pockets because I yeah. think compared to with as popular as climbing's getting, I think it's kind of a travesty that for the most part, so many talented people are so underpaid. Um, you know, you compare to a sport like surfing, like the top surfers making 5.5 mil, the top competition surfers making $5.5 million a year. Right. And for sure, surfing's bigger than climbing, but is it that much bigger? Right. Like there's such a. Yeah. Yeah, hard to say. I, I I agree. I hope that a lot more money makes it to the the best athletes. You know, they're the ones who inspire everyone else and keep everybody else motivated to go out. And you know, I think they deserve it. And just like in every other sport, so. And I hope as well with the associations that they'll be able to get more funding. Um, another tragedy I see with like the development of climbing in America, a country like Austria, a country like France, basically every European country, Holland included, which doesn't even have a single rock in the country. <laughs> they have a sports council, you know, that's right. supported by the government. So then as a sport like climbing becomes recognized, mm -hmm. they can then draw money from the sport council. Yeah. So what that means is the kids who have talent, like none of it's coming out of their parents' pockets. Right. Um, if they go to the world championships in China or wherever it is, like the federation is covering those costs. Yeah. It's meaning that the most talented people are getting the opportunity rather than just the people who have money. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in America, that's going to be a big challenge with climbing right now. Gym memberships sure. are getting ridiculously expensive. Yep. Um, and then for anybody who has talent, like it takes such sac sacrifice. Um, and I think a lot of talent is probably getting overlooked or turning to other sports because yep. there's just not the support. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that the you know maybe the the dirt bagging life saves that for the for the outdoor climber but that doesn't necessarily work in america for the competition climber right yeah you know? or just and also just for developing yeah the best possible talent um, yep. even if it's rock climbing it's still not the easiest thing to pursue or the cheapest yep. thing but if there is more money coming in hopefully yeah that can also help climbers who are looking to climb outside also like um in Austria and even in Greece for that matter, like the local uh, tourist councils and whatnot are giving money for bolts and paying like people who really? bolt routes to go yeah. bolt routes, you know? <clears throat> like if you're good at bolting routes, you can kind of turn that into like a side income. Mm. Um, there's also a lot of development that way, which I yeah. think is also good that it supports the people who are contributing so much to the sport. Yeah, I think we've got a lot to learn over here. So hopefully we do. You know. Yeah, knock on wood. Hopefully the the added, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? The you know the added attention that it's getting turns it into something positive. So yeah, let's hope. I'm yeah. optimistic. Yeah. So. Well, man, thanks for you know inviting us in and letting Anytime. us just crash your your house here. So Anytime. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I enjoy your podcast. Thanks, and man. Your rap music. <laughs> and and I, yeah i also wanted to ask you your so you started off as like an off width climber yeah and invested totally. a lot of your track climbing and now yep. your main focus is bouldering right now i think it is yeah you know i i definitely went the sport climbing direction for a while um and ultimately my goal was to build my skills for trad climbing i wanted to do big long climbs and you know, I feel like right now's the time I need to be bouldering while I can, like I said earlier. And, you know, I'll eventually parlay all that over into into track climbing again. Yeah. And living in Lander, you're going to have the winds in a lot of... Yeah, yeah. I'm so stoked to get into the winds. Fun things to... And there's a lot of guys around there who are getting more and more stoked on track climbing. So, yeah, I'm psyched to get out with those guys for sure. Yeah, that's a cool evolution. Yeah, you'll have to 
come up and we'll go I love we'll go under the winds. It won't take much. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, thanks. A pleasure. Thank you so much. I just want to, you know, make this point one more time that that community is really such an important part of what we're doing. I know Cody and I talked about it a little in the podcast, and I've, you know, maybe I've harped on this before in the past, but but really that's what it comes down to. And I just think it's amazing that I can hit this guy up that I've never met, and a couple hours later I'm in his house and we're having this conversation that seems like we've known each other forever, you know? And that's pretty cool to me. So thanks, Cody for having us over and thanks Austin and Crux Climbing Center again for bringing us out to Austin to begin with and uh, we've got lots of things coming up so stay tuned for sure you guys are getting another episode before the end of the month because I promised three if you got us over the hump um, on our Patreon site and if more you guys want to become patrons and keep these things coming and more episodes per month you know that's what's going to happen that's patreon.com slash power company podcast you can find us there you can find us at powercompanyclimbing.com we're on the facebook's we're on the instagrams we're even on the pinterest's if you need things to be excited about and images and recipes and whatever else we got all sorts of things on pinterest i don't know what it does some of you do some of you love pinterest so Go find us there. Um, you're not, however, going to find us on the Twitter because we don't tweet. We scream like eagles. This time to finish 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 this time to finish